0: Download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. An early morning fog rolled in on January 16th, 1934. Clyde Barrow and James Mullen crouched down by a creek not far from the small town of Lovelady, Texas. For Clyde, this moment had been years in the making. From the creek, Clyde could see two men who were called High Riders making their rounds. High Riders were guards on horses who patrolled the outskirts of Eastham Prism Farm. Their main job was to guard against escape attempts, and they were about to have their hands full. Gunshots rang out from Eastham, and guards scrambled for cover. Clyde propped himself up in the creek, raised his Browning automatic rifle, and let loose. He aimed for the trees just beyond where the High Riders were overseeing a work detail of prisoners. Wood splintered, prisoners hit the ground, and guards ran for their lives as bullets seemed to come from every direction. Footsteps tramped through the fields toward the creek. Clyde's old partner, Ray Hamilton, emerged with fellow prisoners Joe Palmer, Hilton Bybee, and Henry Methvin. They joined Clyde and James and ran for the road. The fog was so thick, they struggled to find their way. A car horn honked repeatedly, and they followed the sound. Bonnie Parker sat in the getaway car, leaning on the horn. When the men arrived, Bonnie slid over to the passenger seat. The V8 roared down the small country road, leaving Eastham far behind. The raid was a success. Clyde Barrow finally had his revenge. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples, especially in the spring when the pollen from desert plants here in Arizona is off the charts. I get all the classic symptoms. Coughing, sneezing, runny nose, itchy eyes, and a pressure buildup in my head. The works. Luckily for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. The double-action combination of prescription-strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. From Black Barrel Media, this is Infamous America. I'm your host, Chris Wimmer. In this season, we're telling a six-part story about the notorious outlaws Bonnie and Clyde. This is Episode 4, Easton Prison Break. Buck Barrow gave up his life of crime when he got out of prison. He promised his parents and his wife Blanche that he'd try to lead a life that would make them proud. That all changed April 13, 1933 in Joplin, Missouri. Police raided the apartment where Buck and Blanche had been staying with Bonnie, Clyde, and W.D. Jones. The ensuing shootout left Buck wounded and sent the Barrow gang on the run. Buck had gone to Missouri hoping to convince Clyde to turn himself in and seek mercy from the court. Buck knew he was the one who introduced his little brother to the criminal lifestyle back in West Dallas when they were just boys, and he hoped he'd be the one to save Clyde before it was too late. But any hope of saving Clyde or even himself now seemed long gone for Buck. In June of 1933, Bonnie suffered a terrible injury when Clyde crashed his car in Wellington, Texas. The car battery had spewed acid on her leg, and Bonnie was now in almost constant pain. Maybe even worse than that, the accident exposed the Barrow gang again. After doing their best to disappear, they'd resurfaced. With attention growing in the national media, Bonnie and Clyde had no choice but to go on the run again and the shootout in Joplin had made Buck and Blanche part of the Barrow gang, so they had to run as well. In late June of 1933, Buck Barrow and W.D. Jones found themselves in Arkansas and face to face with a charging lawman. Buck unloaded his weapon and killed the lawman on the spot. Buck could no longer tell himself he was just an unwitting member of his little brother's gang. He was in the thick of it now, and his actions forced the group to make another quick escape. The gang found their way to Iowa and robbed a series of gas stations to get some much needed cash. Eventually, they landed back in Missouri. They avoided Joplin and settled on a spot in Platte City connected to the Red Crown Tavern. They rented two cabins in a motor court next to the Red Crown, and it might have given them a false sense of security. In one cabin, Buck and Blanche had some time to themselves. In the other, Clyde and WD looked after Bonnie. Her leg wasn't getting any better. She'd also started relying on an addictive painkiller called amitol. Amitol was a barbiturate derivative that functioned as both a sedative and a hypnotic. Clyde had done his best to stop Bonnie from taking the drug, but she insisted, and its effects left her in a haze. Clyde hoped some rest in the Platte City cabin would help Bonnie bounce back. The group in the two cabins seemed suspicious to local authorities from the moment they arrived. They dressed differently than the folks who usually stayed at the motor court, and their car stood out. They paid for things with loose change, and Blanche, the woman who made trips for food and supplies, looked familiar. It didn't take long for police to figure out the Barrow Gang was in town. Before sunrise on July 20th, 1933, an armored car pulled to a stop in front of the cabins, and police readied themselves for a fight. It's believed that Clyde opened fire with his Browning automatic, which caused the police to unload on the cabins. Clyde and WD helped Bonnie to the garage, but Buck and Blanche had to run from their cabin to the other cabin to get to the car. Buck fired into the crowd of police, but he and Blanche were overwhelmed. A shot hit Buck in the temple, and blasted through his forehead. Part of Buck's brain was exposed as Blanche wrapped her arms around him and all but carried him to the car. Clyde opened the garage door through a hail of bullets. With everyone in the car, Clyde hit the gas. Police scattered. It was clear Clyde would run over them if he had to. As they made their escape, bullets riddled the car and shattered the windows. Shards of glass hit Blanche's eyes but she never stopped using her body to shield her wounded husband. Clyde drove as fast as he could, but he couldn't think straight. He knew that his big brother, the person he'd idolized as a kid, was dying in the back seat. Platte City, Missouri sits just over 100 miles from the Iowa border. On a normal day, Clyde could have made the drive in almost no time at all but now he was frazzled and kept getting lost on back roads. Finally, he got his bearings and crossed the state line. He had to find someplace to stop. He knew Buck was dying, but his brother deserved better than to die in the backseat of a car while on the run. Dexfield Park wasn't much more than an abandoned carnival in 1933. Like so many places that once offered entertainment for an entire town, the park had felt the sting of the Great Depression. When people didn't have money for food, they surely didn't have money for rides and carnival games. The Barrow Gang found a secluded area in the park and set up camp. The situation was dire. Everyone knew it was just a matter of time before Buck would die. Clyde and W.D. were in the best shape, but they still had blood to clean up and wounds to tend to. Bonnie could barely walk and Blanche couldn't see out of her left eye. They had some basic medical supplies, but it wasn't enough. Clyde made a trip into town to get bandages and anything else that might help them recover. If they were lucky, their makeshift camp at Dexfield Park would go undetected, and they would have some time to recuperate. Days passed without incident, and somehow Buck Barrow was still alive. But the problem that plagued the gang over and over again happened again. Local law enforcement learned about suspicious people in the area. Soon, authorities figured out that the group camping in Dexfield Park included two of the most famous criminals in the United States. On the morning of July 24, 1933, police and a posse of locals converged on the park. Another gun battle erupted. In the exchange, the badly wounded Buck Barrow got hit again. There was nothing he could do to escape, and Blanche refused to leave his side. Clyde didn't get a chance to say goodbye to his brother. He and WD helped Bonnie down a hill and avoided stray bullets as they ran. They crossed the Raccoon River and made it to a farm. As they'd done in the past, they told the farmer they didn't want to hurt him, but they needed his car. The farmer obliged. Bonnie, Clyde, and WD took the car but ditched it shortly thereafter. They stole another car and kept driving. Somehow, they'd escaped again. The police took Buck and Blanche into custody. Both received immediate medical attention. Doctors removed shards of glass from Blanche's eyes, but she didn't recover full vision in her left eye. There was nothing they could do for Buck. He died on July 29th, 1933. By that time, Blanche was in a jail cell back in Missouri and couldn't be at his side. Blanche eventually received a 10-year sentence for assault with intent to kill, but she was released after six years. Blanche never fired a weapon, but many people viewed her as a violent criminal for the rest of her life. Bonnie, Clyde, and WD were bloodied and battered after the events in Missouri and Iowa. They did their best to restock their weapons and steal enough money to get by but they knew they were in trouble. Newspapers throughout the region were running stories about their latest shootouts. Papers printed their photographs and chronicled the large-scale searches that were underway for the notorious Barrow Gang. There was nowhere to hide, and they couldn't survive on the road in their current condition. They needed help, and there was only one place they could get it. In September of 1933, they returned to West Dallas. W.D. Jones wanted to give up his life of crime and go home to Houston. Bonnie and Clyde understood, and the three parted ways on good terms. Jones would eventually serve six years in prison for crimes connected to his time in the Barrow Gang. He would then live out his life in Houston, spending most of it in a house next to his mother. He was one of the few members of the Barrow Gang who would get to sit and watch the famous 1967 movie Bonnie and Clyde, in which he and Henry are fused into the character of C.W. Moss. In 1974, W.D. Jones, who had mostly avoided falling back into his criminal ways, was shot and killed in an altercation with an acquaintance. His violent death seemed fitting for a man who never fully escaped his connection to Bonnie and Clyde. With W.D. gone, Bonnie and Clyde sought refuge with their families, By 1933, Bonnie was almost incapable of walking, and Clyde often carried her. She needed rest, and she needed to be nursed back to health. While different members of the Parker and Barrow families tended to Bonnie at different hideouts, Clyde started rebuilding his gang. He needed money. Maybe even more than that, he knew his time was running out. If he was going to carry out his raid on Eastham, he had to get things in place. Bonnie and Clyde's fame continued to grow across the country, but they'd been well-known in Dallas for years. Laying low proved to be extremely difficult in their hometown. On the evening of November 22, 1933, Bonnie and Clyde headed to a rendezvous with their families. As the couple neared the site of the meeting, their car was ambushed. They escaped with only minor wounds, but it was clear the police knew they were back in town. Even more disturbing for the pair, they realized one of their own family members must have told the police about the secret spot for the meeting. Dallas was no longer safe. They fled north to Oklahoma in search of help from someone even more infamous than them. Charles Pretty Boy Floyd was from Georgia, but he was raised in Eastern Oklahoma. Pretty Boy Floyd's first murder was said to have been a revenge killing of a man who'd been accused of killing his father. But just as the lives of Bonnie and Clyde have mingled with hearsay and have been romanticized over the years, Floyd's life has become something of a folktale, and it was aided by the fact that Woody Guthrie memorialized him in a song. It's at least well known that Pretty Boy Floyd robbed multiple banks in Ohio and other spots in the Midwest. Floyd loved to use a machine gun, which added to his larger-than-life persona. It was also rumored that when robbing banks, he would tear up or buy out mortgage notes. As Guthrie's Song says, But many a starving farmer, the same old story told, how the outlaw paid their mortgage and saved their little homes. The rumor made Pretty Boy Floyd a hero among struggling Americans in the Depression. In Oklahoma, which was ravaged by the Dust Bowl, he was seen by many as a Robin Hood figure who was doing his part to steal from the rich and give to the poor. When famed criminal John Dillinger was killed, Pretty Boy Floyd became public enemy number one, with an astonishing bounty of $23,000 on his head. Bonnie and Clyde had supposedly met Pretty Boy Floyd in the past, but Floyd wanted nothing to do with them. He believed Clyde Barrow gave all criminals a bad name, and Floyd told his family not to offer help to the pair if they ever came to Oklahoma. Even if the three had never met, Floyd's home in the eastern part of the state was well known. When Bonnie and Clyde arrived, pretty boy Floyd wasn't there, which might have been for the best. Floyd's sister-in-law greeted the couple and gave them food and medical supplies. They thanked her and went on their way. Bonnie and Clyde found a place to hide out in Oklahoma and slowly regained their health. 1933 was coming to an end. Now that he and Bonnie were starting to feel better, Clyde wanted to start 1934 with a bang. Author and acclaimed Bonnie and Clyde expert, John Neal Phillips, believes Clyde Barrow's violent actions were driven by his desire for revenge on the Eastham Prism Farm. Phillips said, Revenge begat revenge. Money had little to do with Clyde's motivation. It was all about revenge. Phillips' argument makes sense. The idea of raiding Eastham stuck with Clyde for years. Even after having to abandon a prior attempt, and even after Bonnie was badly hurt, and even after Buck died, Clyde never gave up the thought of hitting the place where he'd suffered near constant abuse. At the beginning of 1934, things finally started to fall into place. Clyde's former partner, Ray Hamilton, had a plan to break out of Eastham. He got word to Clyde on the outside. Whether Clyde believed in fate or not remains up for debate, but this was as good a sign as any that it was time to carry out his raid. He would need to attack Eastham from inside and out. James Mullen and Ray Hamilton's brother stashed two guns under a bridge on the Eastham grounds, and got word to Ray about the location of the weapons. On the morning of January 16, 1934, Clyde parked his car on the one road that offered an escape route. He left Bonnie in the car and headed down to the creek with James Mullen. On the prison farm, Ray Hamilton and fellow prisoner Joe Palmer readied themselves. They'd retrieved the weapons from under the bridge. When the moment came, Joe Palmer didn't waste time. He approached one of the high riders and shot him at point-blank range. The guard fired his weapon into the air as he plunged off his horse. Ray Hamilton clipped the other high rider and they made a run for it. Clyde covered them from the creek with shots from his Browning automatic. More prisoners emerged from Easton with Ray than Clyde had expected, but it didn't matter. Following the sounds of the car horn Bonnie provided, Clyde led the men through the fog to the car crammed them all in somehow and sped off. It didn't take long for the news to spread. Clyde Barrow had led a daring raid on Eastham to spring his former partner, Ray Hamilton. In a relatively short time, Buck had died, Blanche had gone to jail, and W.D. had gone home. Now the Barrow gang welcomed back Ray and opened its arms to a young man from Louisiana named Henry Methbin. No one Not even Henry himself realized how large a role he would end up playing in the story of Bonnie and Clyde. At the same time Henry joined the gang, another man stepped out of the shadows and put himself front and center. Clyde had embarrassed Eastham's general manager, Lee Simmons, and now Simmons was under attack. He'd allowed a former prisoner to come back and break men out of what was supposed to be the state's strongest prison When one of the High Riders died, Simmons felt even more heat. Not only had he embarrassed the Texas prison system, he'd now lost an officer as well. Simmons knew his future was at stake and he saw only one option to save it. He had to put an end to Clyde Barrow. In her poem, The Trails End, Bonnie Parker writes, the road gets dimmer and dimmer, sometimes you can hardly see but it's fight man to man and do all you can, for they know they can never be free. The fight was coming for Bonnie and Clyde. They'd been on the run from local and state police, but there'd never been a clear coordinated effort to bring the pair down. That was all about to change, and they were gonna face off man to man with someone who almost never lost. One riot, one ranger is a famous phrase connected to a unique branch of Texas law enforcement. The history of the phrase, like the Texas Rangers themselves, has become wrapped up in legend over time. It's been attributed to various rangers over the years and set in the context of various places and circumstances. The history of the Rangers is either one of heroic nobility or brutal violence and suppression, depending on who's telling it. What's generally agreed upon though, is that when the Rangers evolved into a crime-fighting force, they were highly trained and singularly focused when it came to investigating and hunting down criminals at large. Captain Frank Hamer retired from the Texas Rangers in 1932. His career had spanned almost 27 years. In that time, he'd achieved enough to earn himself a spot in the Texas Rangers Hall of Fame and Hamer was known as a crack shot. He was smart, steady, and unrelenting. He'd seen the Old West transform into a world filled with automobiles and new technology, but that didn't mean the criminals had changed all that much. You just had to know how to find them and how to get them to do exactly what you needed. Frank Hamer still knew how to do those things. Eastham General Manager Lee Simmons and the entire Texas prison system had been publicly embarrassed by Clyde Barrow. Clyde and his partner, Bonnie, continued to wreak havoc across Texas and the Midwest. They routinely evaded and escaped police, even when greatly outnumbered and under constant fire. It was time for the pair's crime spree to end, and if the Texas prison system could make it happen, it could redeem itself. Lee Simmons approached Frank Hamer in February of 1934. He wanted Hamer to enter the fray as a special investigator and bring Bonnie and Clyde to justice. The idea of coming out of retirement didn't bother Hamer. He was only 49 years old, and his departure from the Rangers had more to do with politics than the job itself. But there was something about the proposal that concerned him. Like most people in Texas, and much of the country for that matter, Hamer had followed the exploits of Bonnie and Clyde. While others might have done it for entertainment or out of morbid curiosity, Hamer looked on as a lawman and as an investigator. Everything about the actions of Bonnie and Clyde told him they would be nearly impossible to bring in alive. And that could be a problem. Politicians might not have the stomach for the work that this case might require. Simmons assured Hamer that no one involved cared if Bonnie and Clyde were killed in the process. In fact, That outcome was preferred. That was what Hamer needed to hear. He accepted the job and almost immediately got to work. At the time, Clyde Barrow was about to turn 25 years old. Frank Hamer would make sure he wouldn't live to see 26. Next time on Infamous America, Bonnie and Clyde earn their reputations as bank robbers while butting heads with Ray Hamilton and his new girlfriend. And the murder of two young highway patrolmen escalates the manhunt for the Barrow gang. That's next week on Infamous America. This season was co-executive produced by Stephen Walters in association with Ritual Productions. Research and writing by Michael Federico. The theme song for this season is the story of Bonnie and Clyde. The lyrics were adapted from the poem The Trail's End by Bonnie Parker, and the music was written and produced by Brian Ray. The song was performed by Brian Ray, Orianti Penegaris, and Stephen Pack. It was recorded at Bad Manor Studio by Jose Alcantar. Additional original music by Rob Valier. Audio editing and sound design by Dave Harrison. I'm your host and producer, Chris Wimmer. Find us at our website, blackbarrelmedia.com, or on our social media channels. We're Black Barrel Media on Facebook and Instagram, and B Barrel Media on Twitter. And you can stream all our episodes on YouTube, Just search for Infamous America Podcast. Thanks for listening.